Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Giorgio Cafiero. Giorgio is the founder and CEO of Gulf State Analytics, based in Washington. An expert on MENA affairs, a writer and analyst, he appears frequently on Al Jazeera, TRT World, and BBC Persian. In addition to writing for Gulf State Analytics, he's a regular contributor to several outlets, including the Middle East Institute, Inside Arabia, and Responsible Statecraft. Our conversation today focuses on the fraught relationship between Joe Biden and the Saudi Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Giorgio, delighted to have you back on the podcast. Bill, good to be with you. Now, I want to ask you this question, which is, Joe Biden said that uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi Crown Prince, was a pariah. We've gone from pariah to a possible visit, maybe soon, maybe not. We'll, we'll see on that one. Uh, Boris Johnson, our prime minister, went off to Riyadh, uh, cap in hand, to see if he could secure a break on the uh, energy situation. Pump us more oil, he said. Uh, He came away empty handed. Um, Do you think that Joe Biden, when, if he does his trip to Riyadh, uh, meets with Mohammed bin Salman, do you think that's going to make a difference? It's an excellent question. I think that there's obviously some serious problems between Washington and Riyadh. These have been going on for a number of years. They have certainly exacerbated since Biden's presidency began in January 2021. My view is that if slash when Biden goes to Saudi Arabia and meets with Mohammed bin Salman, he might be able to partially mend fences He might be able to make improvements in some areas where there has been tension between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. But I think as long as Biden is the president of the U.S., at a fundamental level, the two countries, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, are not going to be able to overcome uh, the tensions in bilateral affairs I think from the Saudi point of view, uh, they just see the Biden administration as one which the Saudis cannot trust, whether we're discussing the conflict in Yemen, the White House's approach to Iran and the JCPOA talks in Vienna, and just sort of a general sense that the U.S. is withdrawing from the Middle East it's going to be very difficult for the Saudis to trust the U.S. leadership too much. By the same token, um, you know, this goes two ways as well. And I think when you look at Saudi Arabia's deepening relationships with countries such as China and Russia, that very much unsettles the Biden administration in this day and age of sort of intensified great power competition I, however, do not see the Saudis fundamentally changing their approaches to uh, China and Russia. And I think uh, the ways in which Riyadh is adapting to a more multipolar world are very unsettling to Biden, probably going to be unsettling to the next president, regardless of whether he or she is a Democrat or a Republican. So yeah, once again, I, I just don't think the the fundamental sources of tension between Washington and Riyadh can be overcome uh, simply with one visit that Biden pays, although that could help uh, 
decrease some of the attention in certain areas to certain extents. Yeah, and there are these efforts going on. I, I see that there's a couple of delegations that are coming to Washington, a fairly high profile. Uh, one is being led by the Saudi Minister of Commerce, the, the second uh, by the Investment Minister. But, but do you think there's something personal as well in that relationship between Biden and Mohammed bin Salman? They just don't like each other. So let's go back to 2019. Biden at that time was a presidential candidate. He was on the debate stage debating his fellow Democratic presidential hopefuls. And he addressed the killing of Jamal Khashoggi and the conflict in Yemen with his famous line that he wanted to transform Saudi Arabia into a pariah. Obviously, anyone who has any sort of understanding of the U.S.-Saudi relationship and Biden's foreign policy track record had no reason to think that Biden was going to actually do anything if elected to try to transform the kingdom into a global pariah. It was very clear that Biden at that point was speaking to a domestic audience, you know, his constituents are in the Democratic Party. These were the voters who ultimately helped him defeat Trump in 2020. And as we know, in the Democratic Party, especially on the more left-leaning, progressive side of the party, anti-Saudi sentiments have, have grown. And Saudi bashing has become more popular among this segment of the U.S. population. A lot of this has to do with the fact that Trump was very close to the Saudi leadership, and so were other people in his administration, such as Jared Kushner. And then, of course, the murder of Hashoggi uh, genuinely outraged many people in the United States. All of this is to say that Biden used that word pariah for domestic political purposes. However, people in Saudi Arabia remember him using that word. And even after the campaign came to an end and he came into office and made it very clear that he would do nothing to try to make Saudi Arabia a pariah, that language stuck. So yes, to answer your question, I, I think there's, there are problems on a personal level. And let's also realize that Many of the people who were in Biden's administration, including Biden himself or veterans of the Obama administration, those were pretty bad years for the U.S.-Saudi relationship in many ways. The Obama administration did quite a bit in the Middle East that left officials in Riyadh and some other Arab capitals very nervous, a very much in doubt about the U.S. commitment to their security. And just by simply bringing back many of these figures from the Obama years, you know, that, that doesn't sit well with the leadership in Riyadh. And you have uh, Mohammed bin Salman. He is an arrogant young man that reportedly refusing to take phone calls from, from Biden. Can you shed any light on that? Well, as I've said, there is quite a bit that the Biden administration has been doing in the Middle East, which really angers the Saudi leadership and officials in Riyadh have been determined to make that anger known to Washington. And 
Obviously, as you know, because of the Ashoji killing, uh, Biden made it clear that his, his administration's policy was that at the presidential level, the talks are with King Salman, who on, on paper is the Saudi head of state and not with Mohammed bin Salman, who, despite being the de facto ruler of the country, is, is the crown prince and technically not the head of state. So I think when this conflict in Ukraine broke out earlier this year, and we've had all this instability in global energy markets, and the U.S. wanted Saudi Arabia to boost oil production, uh, the Saudis wanted to make it clear to the U.S. that they don't take orders from Washington, especially if the administration is going to take this kind of approach to Mohammed bin Salman. And whether we love or hate the fact that the Saudis have played their cards this way, I think from a Saudi standpoint, it's, it's worked to serve their interests. Now we have Biden purportedly uh, going to Saudi Arabia next month, and the administration has decided that it's going to, quote, unquote, legitimize Mohammed bin Salman, de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. And, uh, you know, I think we can say the Saudis have played hardball and we've been able to see the kind of leverage that they have. You know, it makes me wonder, though, uh, Jojo, if Joe Biden has any idea of uh, how to handle Saudi Arabia, how to how to approach uh, MBS and the reports that some of his very senior people have already been to Riyadh to, to try and smooth things over and that uh, MBS uh, shouted at uh, Jake Sullivan, I believe, and said, don't bring up Jamal Hashoji to me. I, I, do you think that Biden really has any kind of coherent strategy to deal with uh, Mohammed bin Salman? Well, let, let's be frank. You know, uh, Biden is in a difficult position. He has to balance so-called U.S. values, American values, and U.S. national interests. And I think this is a time in which the two clash, and they definitely do not align. Biden wants to sort of save face on one hand. He had this very strong language during the campaign. This was, you know, a response to the atrocious killing of Jamal Khashoggi. On the other hand, a few years have passed since that gruesome murder. And it's not to say that people in Washington have forgotten about what happened. That's definitely not the case. People will always remember what happened with that murder. But with time, I think the sort of level of outrage does gradually decrease. So it's been a few years since that murder took place in Istanbul. And there are new circumstances in a world that's evolving very quickly. And the administration's focus is on countering Russia and dealing with this conflict in Ukraine. And the Saudis are in a position to uh, help the U.S. with its national interests. And also, it's uh, clear that high gas prices in the U.S. constitute a major political liability for Democrats. And this brings up many issues that goes way beyond Ukraine or U.S.-Saudi relations. If Democrats suffer because of high gas prices and then Republicans dominate the House and the Senate, there are many other issues where Biden is going to have a weaker hand for the remainder of his term. So there's, of course, the aspect of domestic politics that is influencing Biden's approach to Saudi Arabia right now. Um, does he know what he's doing? I mean, that's a great 
the question. Um, I, I think what we can say is that he's in a really difficult situation and he's trying to strike a very delicate balance. And, you know, I mean, it doesn't look good when he has that strong language as a candidate back in 2019. And then he goes to Saudi Arabia and makes it very clear that he's going to never treat Saudi Arabia like it's a pariah. But at the same time, um, you know, there's always a huge gap between the rhetoric that we hear from candidates who are out on the campaign trail trying to say the right things to get votes and then what they do once they're in power. Biden is hardly unique in this sense, if we're being honest. But of course, there is, too, that the issue of uh, human rights as being a, a core part of American foreign policy and even setting aside the horrible killing of Jamal Ashurji, serious uh, human rights violations. Uh, but, but, you know, if Biden does go to Riyadh, if he does meet up with MBS, MBS has already, as I said uh, earlier, uh, met with Boris Johnson. President Macron was there in December. Erdogan, President Erdogan, has 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 made his his journey, if you will. What do these meetings with these leaders mean for uh, Mohammed bin Salman? How important are they to him? Well, I think these meetings, which are very symbolic, do matter a lot to Mohammed bin Salman and to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It's difficult to imagine Mohammed bin Salman not becoming the next king of Saudi Arabia. After his father, King Salman, passes away, we can certainly expect MBS to ascend to the throne. He's in his 30s, which means that for many more decades, he could be the king of Saudi Arabia. Regardless of what other countries around the world think about Mohammed bin Salman, any country that wants to have a relationship with Saudi Arabia, obviously including the countries you mentioned, US, France, Turkey, many, many more countries as well, they have to accept this reality. And dealing with Saudi Arabia is going to require dealing with Mohammed bin Salman. So I sort of interpret these meetings as simply these countries are coming to terms with the inevitable and they want to start reaching out to Mohammed bin Salman and to start to have some sort of a positive relationship with him in preparation for the future. Yeah, I, th I think that's, that's spot on, Giorgio. But I also wonder, you know, Biden goes to Riyadh, meets with MBS. Surely that's displaying not American diplomatic strength, but, but great weakness. Well, I think what's very clear is that circumstances around the world are giving the Saudis more leverage right now. Uh, this is the case with higher, with increased oil prices, increased revenue to the Saudi state. Also, the situation in Ukraine, whereby the U.S. is trying to bring Saudi Arabia and other GCC countries into greater alignment with Western countries against Moscow. All of these factors are making Mohammed bin Salman more confident. Uh, he's not begging Joe Biden to uh, come to Saudi Arabia. Joe Biden is going to Saudi Arabia, or at least reportedly going to Saudi Arabia next month because of things that the U.S. needs from Saudi Arabia. Saudi leadership is realizing that governments around the world 
are bringing Riyadh into their discussions and consulting with Riyadh when it comes to formulating responses to international crises. The Saudis are very keen to remind important powers around the world, such as the United States, that Saudi Arabia is their important partner. And I think with this leverage, uh, Mohammed bin Salman is going to use it. And he's going to use it in ways, in, in many areas, far beyond just um, the US-Saudi relationship or the conflict in Ukraine. And I think we can expect the crown prince when he becomes the king of Saudi Arabia to be a very confident leader and to act very boldly. I mentioned the uh, human rights issues that that was supposed to be one of the core values of uh, American foreign policy. I go back uh, several years now to the uh, first labor government and uh, Robin Cook, the then foreign secretary saying that human uh, rights was going to be a core value. Uh, of course, that didn't happen. Uh, it certainly doesn't appear to be happening here now. So, you know, the whole human rights issue, is that just pretty much marginalized now? Well, I think it's important to realize when it comes to the United States that regardless of whether you have a Democrat or a Republican in the office, United States does not have a foreign policy that's guided by respect for human rights. And I know some people won't like to hear me say that, but the U.S. is like any other country in the sense that it's motivated by its interests. And when its national interests conflict with the promotion of human rights, the U.S. will always pursue its national interests. When we're talking about Saudi Arabia, that's the case. And also when we talk about other issues in the Middle East, that is the case too. I think what's maybe different between someone like Biden or Trump is that Biden might not be so cavalier when talking about certain issues such as arms sales to Saudi Arabia or his personal relationships with uh, Mohammed bin Salman. You remember, um, you know, when before uh, before uh, Twitter kicked Trump off the platform, uh, the kinds of tweets he made about Saudi Arabia, the arms sales, his um, respect for Mohammed bin Salman, that sort of style is not there with Biden. But when you get below the surface and you look at the substance of the U.S.-Saudi relationship, it has not really changed so much from the Trump era to the Biden era. It, it remains uh, a strong partnership, uh, despite the problems and the tensions and the, some clashes of personality between Biden administration officials and leadership in Riyadh. But ultimately, just as the Trump administration very much valued Saudi Arabia as an important U.S. partner, the same can be said about the Biden administration, too. I wonder, Giorgio, uh, taking that point into consideration, is there a risk that as America's regional influences wanes, the Saudis and other Gulf countries will see alternatives, China or Russia, as their security guarantors? I'm really glad you asked that question. I think many people are oversimplifying the situation uh, and the context in which Biden will presumably go to Saudi Arabia next month. Many are simply acting like he's going there just because of this issue of high gas prices 
in the United States, and he's going there to try to do something to bring some relief to Americans at the pump between now and the November elections. Obviously, that's a factor, and that is an important part of uh, Biden's motivation for going to Saudi Arabia next month. But in a grander geopolitical context, he is also going to go to Saudi Arabia to try to assert U.S influence at a time in which Washington is very nervous about rising China and growing Russian influence in the Arab world. The Biden administration realizes that even if the U.S. might be the strongest country, most powerful country in the world, the international geopolitical order is becoming more multipolar and the Saudis very much have the opportunity to deepen relations with the Chinese, with the Russians. And if the U.S. at the presidential level is going to simply ignore Mohammed bin Salman, he can certainly deepen Saudi Arabia's relationships with Beijing and Moscow. So again, I think Biden is going to Saudi Arabia to try to really assert some U.S. influence in Saudi Arabia and the GCC at large, and we shouldn't overlook how this these dynamics of great power competition are definitely in play right now. Mm. Turning to Israel, Jojo, uh, which is intended to be part of the, the Biden junket, many Democrats are appalled by Israeli treatment of Palestinians, the murder of the journalist uh, Shireen uh, Abu Akleh, and the attack by the police on the funeral cortege come immediately to mind, but the daily violence inflicted on Palestinians is of great concern to many Democrats. Does President Biden have a coherent policy on the Palestine-Israel conflict? I think that what we're getting from the Biden administration is really a continuation of U.S. foreign policy for decades in relation to Israel and Palestine. Uh, There is no reason to think that Biden administration officials like Anthony Blinken are sincere when they talk about accountability for uh, this recent killing. Uh, you know, for decades, journalists have been getting killed in the West Bank reporting on the Israeli occupation. So as horrible and outrageous as this killing was, it wasn't really that surprising. We know that Israel is responsible for Shireen's death And we hear these talking points from Blinken about how we need to wait to find out who's accountable. And then there's all this talk about some Israeli investigation. Um, You know, the Biden administration officials don't seem to even acknowledge that um, Israel came out and said that they're not going to be carrying out an investigation. This is, you know, part of the way Israel operates. They, um, you know, when they do have investigations in the past, you know, they never result in any Israeli military officials or really anyone in Israel being held accountable. This is part of what the apartheid system is all about. There is just absolutely no accountability for the crimes carried out by the occupiers. And it's, it's basically just a joke to think that Israel is going to hold any of its own accountable for the killing. 
Uh, meanwhile, U.S. continues to support Israel militarily, economically, diplomatically, giving Tel Aviv absolutely no incentive to change. So no, I, uh, I don't think that this administration, despite all its rhetoric about human rights, is in any way uh, committed to promoting justice or equality in Israel-Palestine, just a continuation of U.S. foreign policy, business as usual. Mm, so um, that's the coherent policy behind all the rhetoric. Same as it always was. Same as it always was. Finally, uh, Jojo, has President Biden fallen into the same trap that Barack Obama set for himself, the securing of, or in uh, Biden's case, the return to a JCPOA deal uh, with Iran at the expense of America's friends and allies in the Gulf and the wider Middle East? It's a great question. You know, um, you're absolutely right. When the Obama administration was negotiating with Tehran and during the years that led up to the JCPOA's passage in 2015, in these countries such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE, there was a sense that Washington was negotiating with Tehran and doing so without regard for GCC states' security concerns. Uh, this time around, as the Biden administration is trying to negotiate a revival of the nuclear deal, there are, again, these views from Riyadh and Abu Dhabi and Manama that the U.S. administration is just desperate to bring about a revival of the nuclear accord, and they will try to do so, and the U.S. officials will try to do so without any concern for GCC countries, which are very worried about the implications of sanctions being lifted on Iran. Some of these countries in the Gulf do not really welcome a revival of the JCPOA. And this doesn't really have anything to do with issues that directly pertain to Iran's nuclear program. I wouldn't say that the Iranian nuclear program is irrelevant, but it's pretty low down on the list of concerns for these countries. Their main fears have to do not with Iran's nuclear program, but more with the non-nuclear dimensions of Tehran's foreign policy. They see Iran and the support which it gives to certain non-state actors in the Arab region as a big threat to GCC states. They worry that if the JCPOA is reconstituted and sanctions are lifted or eased on Iran, that this will result in the Islamic Republic being more aggressive in the Middle East. Their view is that the Biden administration uh, is not really sensitive to these dynamics. At the same time, I think there's a really important point that many um, people kind of in the think tank world and in the U.S. media overlook, and that's that not all of the U.S.'s allies and partners in the region have this perspective. There are many countries bordering Iran that are in the neighborhood, which are very tied to the United States, which fully support a revival of the JCPOA. And uh, which countries are you talking about, Jojo? Talking about Qatar, Iraq, Sultanate of Oman, Turkey, 
Kuwait, other countries as well. So I just want to stress that it's not the case that every um, U.S. friendly country in the neighborhood opposes the JCPOA. Uh, for example, Qatar um, is working to try to help Washington and Tehran find some sort of a middle ground that makes it possible to reconstitute the JCPOA. From Doha's perspective, you know, maybe there are some flaws to the JCPOA and it's not a perfect accord. But the Qatari perspective is that there's no viable alternative that uh, would be any better than the JCPOA and that reviving the JCPOA is the most realistic way to bring about stability in, in the Gulf. And as I mentioned, there are these other countries that uh, have grave concerns about what would happen if the JCPOA is not reconstituted and if tensions between the U.S. and Iran would spiral out of control, they worry that they would get caught up in the crossfire. Um, this is especially the case for Iraq, where you know the country has very close ties to both Washington and Tehran. And in recent years, we've seen many episodes in which there are confrontations between the U.S. and Iran that play out on Iraqi soil, the killing of Qasem Soleimani being a, a case in point, and officials in Baghdad very much worry that if the JCPOA falls apart for good, that you could see a confrontation between the U.S. and Iran, which is extremely dangerous uh, to Iraq. And I just think it's important for us to keep in mind that there's definitely no regional consensus on the JCPOA. And while some countries are trying to see to it that the U.S. fails to revive the JCPOA, there are other countries that definitely want to see it revived. Good observation, Giorgio. And uh, when that trip to Riyadh finally happens, uh, I think that uh, President Biden will have quite a long along a list of talking points uh, should he finally uh, meet up with uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, th thank you. Thank you very much. The pleasure is all mine. Always good to be on your show. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was Giorgio Cafiero, founder and CEO of Gulf State Analytics in Washington. Since we launched two years ago, the podcast has been listened to more than 75,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thank you to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on SoundCloud, Amazon Music, or other audio platforms. In addition to the podcasts, the Arab Digest daily newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, experts like Giorgio. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources. <laughs>